The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Bernie Sanders, socialist, Sandinista supporter, USSR visitor back in 1988, is or seems to be rich fodder for Donald Trump come this fall, or even a guy like Pete Buttigieg now. Sanders was profiled on 60 Minutes, and as part of that report, they played some old clips of him. Here's a snippet from the 60 Minutes report. Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. He educated the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. Pete Buttigieg took a look at that quote, and he tweeted, after four years of looking on in horror as Trump cozied up to dictators. We need a president who will be extremely clear in standing against regimes that violate human rights abroad. We can't risk nominating someone who doesn't recognize this. I think that's unfair. Just as I have defended Bloomberg from unfair selective snippets being portrayed as saying something he actually didn't say or didn't mean, I will now do the same for Sanders. That, by the way, that's my whole point. It's my whole shtick. I'm not here to comfort one candidate or afflict another. It's all about the arguments. Good arguments should be confirmed. Bad arguments or unfair arguments should be cast out. So I have watched a lot of tape, a lot of tape of Bernie Sanders when he came back from Yaroslav in 1988. Yes, right after he was married. I have also, by the way, watched tape of the marriage ceremony I mean, the guy had a cable access show in the 80s, and they had programming to fill, and there was Bernie and Jane exchanging vows. Bernie Sanders really and truly did say just normal and responsible things that you would have wanted a very peace-oriented mayor of Burlington, Vermont, to say in 1988. Over and over, he said the Soviet Union had a lot of flaws. He marveled at the cost of their housing, but also noted it was substandard by U.S. definitions. The quality of your housing is not good, but we appreciate the fact that people are paying 5%. He didn't excuse the flaws of Soviet leadership, but he did compliment the Soviets on their friendliness and their ballet and their art, even some art that doesn't uh, float my boat. Uh, We went to a a, a theater in Yaroslavl, which was absolutely beautiful, had three separate stages where cultural programs are put on by professional actors and actresses, including a puppeteer uh, area. And the cost, the highest price of a ticket that you can get was the equivalent of $1.50. Now, you couldn't pay me $100 to watch most Soviet-style puppeteers, but Sanders is different and his intent is clear. He had a nice time. They are nice people. Let's not try to nuke each other. What do you say? Now, I think the reason that Sanders didn't misstep and say something overly praiseworthy about Andre Gromyko was that... He knew Gromyko to be oppressive. He knows Castro to be oppressive. I disagree with Bernie's policy prescriptions all over the board, but Bernie actually does not love tyrants. That is not his jam. There are some leftists who turn a blind eye to other leftist leaders who may have a gulag here or a forced famine there, but that's not Sanders. As again, 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 I've watched hours and hours of this guy talking in some Burlington gymnasium upon getting off the plane at the airport, and it's just normal, why-can't-we-all-get-along rhetoric. This is a guy with 
hours of public access tapes delineating his viewpoints from 40 years ago. And guess what? It's the same viewpoint as today. It's not always my viewpoint, but it's not shocking. It's not immoral. It's not disqualifying. And it certainly cannot be described as compromise. On the show today, tonight, tonight, I spiel about a cultural phenomenon occurring on Broadway that the New York Times just does not like. Here comes the Times like a bat out of hell. Someone gets in the way. Someone don't feel so well. But first, if Bernie was blown away by the affordability of Soviet housing compared to the then 40% of incomes Americans were spending on housing in the 80s, well, he's not going to love what's going on in San Francisco. Their residents would jump at a chance to pay as little as 40% of their income for housing. The housing crisis in certain American metro areas is acutely local, but also has implications for the whole country. Connor Dougherty is here to discuss his new book about the most populous state, which is facing the most nettlesome questions about where to put all those people, Golden Gates, the fight for housing in America. Buildings are about, well, structures, but that's not how human beings relate to stories. Human beings relate to stories I have been told and found through other human beings. And that's what Connor Dougherty does in his new book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. He tells the story of San Francisco and housing and California and housing and America and housing, but he does it through people, people who are fighting the fight, people who are getting crushed by the fight. Connor Dougherty of the New York Times, welcome. Thank you for having me. This was an excellent way to look at a problem that I've thought a lot about. I am from New York. I know a lot about the New York housing market. And you hear horror stories of California. Do you view what's going on in San Francisco as where much of America is going, the pinnacle or the uh, the the point of this extremely sharp spear in terms of housing or still a little bit of an outlier? How much can the rest of us glean from the California, sorry, San Francisco example? I think it's all those things. It's both the pinnacle and a example for the rest of us. Uh, There's long been this frame in America that California is a look at the nation's future. And in this case, it's not a terribly optimistic uh, look. And so I, I think that San Francisco is by far the worst place right now. But as you just alluded to, all sorts of places around the country, Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, whatever, pick your place. Yeah. You know, I always say to people- New York, Boston. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but I always say to people, there's three kinds of cities in America. There's the kind of prosperous, a lot of wealth city where you can't afford to live there. There's the totally declining factory city, typically a factory city, where- uh, they don't have enough jobs. They don't have anything. Yeah. And then there's the kind of the third city, which which uh, honestly is sort of the future of America and is more like a Phoenix or a Houston where it's like the more sprawl-centric model, but mm-hmm. it's built ever. And so those are kind of like our three kinds of places. Right. right. Oh, if you could get in on the ground floor of a Columbus, that's pretty good. Which is like, <laughs> well, that's a college a, town. That's, that's like kind too. of the third that mm-hmm. maybe I don't know what you call that. Then you got the uh, research trying. Yeah, there's also. like Boulder yep. is one of those. Right. But, you know, there are, there are hybrids, too. You know, Pittsburgh was the hollowed out husk. Then it became an intellectual uh, hub, but still pretty affordable. So this gets to a question that I was going to ask fourth. But let me ask it now. A premise of the book and the experience is that there is this housing shortage in the places that people want to live. But is there a housing shortage in America? Could you argue that there's just a 
movement shortage? I mean, plenty of houses in Nebraska. Excellent, excellent, excellent question. This question comes up in all the bookstore talks I've had. And whether or not that's true on the housing front, I think it's kind of true on the housing front, but on the land front, it's absolutely true. Oh, right, yeah. But here's what I say to that. Look out an airplane window, and there's obviously a lot of space. So we choose to live in these dense places. Look at New York. People are still trying to come here still for a reason, right? And that reason is we want to exchange ideas. We want to uh, meet and marry people. We want to um, be close to family. I mean, there's all these different reasons. See the arts. There's all these different reasons why. And economic growth is heavily, heavily, heavily tied to dense, complicated cities. And that is more true, that is becoming more true in the age of kind of a more knowledge-based economy. So there are all these things, institutions, ways of life, ideas, kinds of businesses, you know, social ethos things, all these things, these industries congregate and cluster is the term uh, economists use for a reason. And you can't just separate those reasons. By the way, a lot of tech people have kind of, kind of the more techno libertarian utopian types have talked about going and building kind of build up cities Mm -hmm. that they would where they'd be regulation free and whatever. You've heard some people talk about the seasteading Institute, you know, (laughs) and I actually think that's just as stupid for all the exact same reasons, which is, the underlying core belief of, oh, if we just got all a bunch of like-minded people and moved them to, or, you know, to where we could all exchange ideas and, you know, I think it would fall apart because, well, for starters, because the history of utopian societies is not good. No. But also because that, the Bay Area is the reason Apple and Google and all those places exist, not the other way around. And, 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 and I would say... I'm going on too long, but I'm very passionate about this idea because I think that humans like to kind of be around each other up to a point and growth and all these other things reflect that basic condition. Is rent control and rent regulation part of the problem, part of the solution or both? I had an evolution Mm -hmm. on rent control through the course of this book. Um, One of the main long kind of narratives in this book is a 15 year old girl who she's a Latino girl in Redwood city, which is near uh, it's in the Silicon Valley. And she lives in an apartment and her mom does elder care, cleans houses, and then sometimes moonlights as a janitor. So she is, she is all of those people in one day. And then she got an $800 rent increase and could not absorb it. So this 15 year old girl organizes this apartment complex, this other apartment complex, they fight the landlord you will see how that turns out. Um, but it was this horrible, horrible situation. And the thing that like got me almost crying at one point was the girl. She said the real stress of it to her was that she started to kind of take on the stress of the whole apartment complex because, I mean, she just kind of got into it like, I want to save my family. And then, of course, people would tell her, oh, you know, if you organize the whole building, you'll have a better chance because you can negotiate the landlord as a unit. And she did all this work. But of course, she's 15. She doesn't know what she's doing. So once she kind of does all this, she starts to really feel like, have I made like a promise to these people that I can save them? And she just really started to take on the mantle of responsibility with the way a boss or the leader of an institution starts to feel for the people. Anyway, if that situation and the heartbreak of it and the injustice of it and the uh, outrage of it, if that bothers you, I don't know what we do to help her other than something like rent control. Now, An economist would tell you, 
I think we should do something for someone like that, but it's not very economically efficient to do it. So what we should do is give a big tax program or something like that. If we were having yeah. a rip-roaring righteous debate uh-huh. about this multi-hundreds of billions of dollars a year tax program that would address you know, tenants like that versus rent control, I might have a totally different feeling about this. But that's not the debate we're having. And on top of that, leaving aside my feelings about it, yeah. that is the policy solution that is available to people. So if you're a tenant and you're a tenant's rights you're in the tenants' rights movement, and you want to go engage your democracy like any of us do when we're unhappy about something, that is the solution that our governments, state, local, federal, have presented to them. Yes. And that's the solution you go fight for. So I just told you this sad, sad, sad story. But of course, I was at a book party the other night, and I met a guy who said, he's got like his $800 apartment in the West Village, that he's had since the 70s. He owns like a like a house in California. Yeah. He flies between them. I think there should be... The government is literally giving this guy money. He called it a trust <laughs> fund. Yeah. He's literally... And there's no way he could ever give it up. And what, he, what it's doing is enabling... Sure, it's an extreme example. He flies to California. But think of the greenhouse gases. Think about how the house in California is taking up resources and land. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say um, there is something to be said for programs that don't require a lot of forms. I, I sound like a hardcore Bernie supporter right now, though I don't have a, I don't mean to come off that way. I mean, you know, I think. No, I, no, no. I think you're not a Bernie supporter because you acknowledge that the the economists would say and the data, like I say, I'm data driven. The data says that rent control is at best a very blunt solution. But then when you run up against the person who pulls the heartstrings, how do you tell that person, sorry, you're you know being slaughtered on the uh, on the sword of this data? And it's not only how do you tell that person, it's this is what our democracy has put in its policy toolkit as the main way a tenant has to try to protect themselves. If we had a million other effective solutions and we had them sitting on the table for people to engage then absolutely that many of them might be better. I don't know if you if you came up with some weird policy Rube Goldberg machine in which the zoning and the rent control and the housing supply were all sort of tied together mm-hmm. in some weird mix. Right. And people had to kind of start trading off all these different things so that the the you know in times of true emergency people weren't getting completely screwed but you know we were still building housing health I mean I, but but maybe a bunch of people fighting with each other and hating each other and fighting for different policy solutions is that Rube Goldberg machine? Yes. So, you know. But if the way they could actually enact the solution didn't depend on, you know, class action lawsuits and ballot measures, which are huge in California, and then the Supreme Court ruling against the ballot measures. Like, I, I love that idea, but it doesn't seem like the process that we have in America or California or San Francisco would give us some sort of great, um, you know, bath water. We're a little bit hot and a little bit cold as we're, as well, we're regulating the tap. So one of my favorite characters in San Francisco history and probably even in American history, you may have heard of him, but may not, is Henry George. Do you know who that is? I don't know. Henry George wrote a book called Progress and Poverty in, I think, 1879. He wrote this book in San Francisco. It was very well known. It was a huge bestseller. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved this book. So his big idea was what he called the single tax. Yes. So you would reduce, you would get rid of all taxes in America, but create one tax yes. that would be a single tax on the use of land. 
so Henry George is in San Francisco around the time of the gold rush, yeah. but he was very religious yeah. at the time. He was kind of a social justice warrior, uh, um, you know, for that time. And his real anger with the world was monopolizing land, rent-seeking behavior. Yes. Um, and of course, when he talks about rents, he means it in a, in a larger way. I and mean, he did mean literal rent, but he also meant like economic rents. Like he meant like land barons who wouldn't allow a more productive farmer to use it unless they could take a toll from that. Anyway, my point is San Francisco and a lot of places, New York's the same way, has always had this weird tradition of a bunch of people coming there to seek fortune, seek gold, literally gold or digital gold or, you know, to, to, to sort of go out there and they see it as a utopian place to get rich. Their dream that they want to live is a dream of getting rich. And then it also attracts this whole other group of social revolutionaries who their dream is they want to build a new kind of society that will be more equitable in some way, you know, whatever, right? And I just think that those two groups are always merging with each other, even though they seem like they're fighting with each other. Yeah. The place is a reflection of that fight. Yeah. The same way that the internet is this weird amalgam of the military industrial complex and hippies. Like what? Like they're sitting there protesting each other, but quietly they're building this new thing that's coming out of it, you know? And so I think that when you look at the tenant rights fights, you look at the Yimby movement, you look at all these different things happening in cities, whatever the history, whatever the like trajectory we go on next is going to be, I think we'll look at this time as being like, Oh, oh, wow, that's how we got that thing, you know, but it'll be something when you and I can't even imagine right now because it just seems too strange. So my point is, I actually think that 40 years from now, somebody, hopefully me, uh, can go, will go back and look at this period and the Bay Area at that time because, you know, they're, I mean, I mean, all the implications for democracy. I mean, who even knows? Mm -hmm. But all these companies that are being created there and the effects they're having on voting and social, I mean, all this stuff that we're reconciling with every day. Whatever future we're going to have, and it might be a horrible future, it might be a better future, I feel like we could see the seeds of it in this story. Yes. I always think the future is uh, better than you fear, but worse than you wish. Well, that's been mine. You know, there, there are definitely points when you'd have been wrong, but in general, that's how it's worked out. The name of the book is Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. The author, Connor Dougherty. Thanks so much, Connor. Thank you. And now the spiel. Man, does the New York Times hate West Side Story. When producer Scott Rudin announced he was bringing the Leonard Bernstein and lyricist Stephen Sondheim musical to Broadway in a new production directed by Ivan Van Hove, you figured that everyone in the Times would give big cheer. But everyone there gave a huge sneer. Could it be? Yes, it could. A new production that's not very good. But the thing is, it is pretty good, according to most people who've seen it, other than the New York Times. Not everyone, but man, does the Times hate it. I mean, the New York Daily News calls the show a gripping West Side that you watch with both an appreciation for the power of the young and in love and a profound sense of all-American doom. This is what Broadway can do when it focuses relentlessly on how it wants to make its audience feel. The LA Times said, West Side Story blasts back to Broadway, kinetic, bloody, and modern to the core. Entertainment Weekly gave it a B. But the Times critic Ben Brantley ripped it, which is fine. Others did too. And anyway, there's a new Spielberg movie coming out. So if a show like this will give you sorrow, you'll meet another one tomorrow.
But it wasn't just the critic, the main Broadway critic and his appraisal. The new show has been subject to a torrent of negative coverage, rotten reviews, and outraged op-eds. They've written two stories about the protests outside the theater aimed at the production's Bernardo, Amar Ramasar. Ramasar, when with the New York City Ballet, received naked photos of a company member's girlfriend. The New York Times ran an op-ed that was against not this production specifically, but the very idea of West Side Story being performed at all. The headline, Let West Side Story and Its Stereotypes Die, subhead the latest Broadway revival can't fix the painful ways it depicts Puerto Ricans. The author there lights into this or any other revival of the show, arguing, quote, These continuous revivals reinforce America's colonizing power to determine who Puerto Ricans get to be. The Times ran Brantley's main review, calling the show a curiously unaffecting reimagining of a watershed musical. And then, in case the drubbing wasn't complete, and from all corners, they ran a dance-specific review by Gia Corliss, which decried the production's dancing as operating, quote, to varying degrees like wallpaper. Choreography doesn't make this West Side Story breathe. There are other questionable moments, the review goes on, as when the Sharks and Jets position themselves on either side of Maria and Tony to pull them apart after the couple meets at the gym. It's an image embarrassingly more suited to an Instagram post, which is sad but fitting. This is an Instagram show. The review, which actually was, I liked, it was an insightful piece of criticism, but I did think it also tried to start a rumble with a few of the other Times critics who as documented, loathe the show for other reasons. Gia Corliss wrote, the production seems to be aiming for that cheesiest of words, gritty. Cut to the Brantley review, the irrepressible iconoclast Van Hove, it was said, would be taking a grittier, rawer approach. He wrote gritty, cheesy gritty, that's not witty, but shitty to write. By the way, that ditty, I feel pretty, is not in this version of the musical. The opinion of the New York Times is obviously vital to a Broadway show. So important that the publicity machine for this West Side Story took a straight news article written about the show and cobbled together a Frankenstein's monster of disconnected thoughts. They then bought a print ad which gave the impression that the New York Times said the show was, quote, gravity-defying, audacious, uncompromising, passionate, and beautiful. Some of those words are actually, in many cases, variations of those words did appear in the original Times article, but they were not applied to the show or the quality of the show itself. That ad did run in the New York Times, lying about the New York Times. And today, the New York Times announced it was pulling that ad. I guess the producers of the show were desperate to see something less than scathing about their product in the paper of record. And if they had to buy their way in with lies, well, they still thought there is a place for us. I'm not sure what's really happening with this one institution, the New York Times, on the corner of 8th Avenue and West 40th, and this other institution currently playing on the corner of Broadway and West 53rd. Is it a turf war? Is it a culture clash? All I know is there seems to be a lot more to this West Side Story. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the associate producer of The Gist, where she's drawn the line, so keep your noses hidden. She's hanging a sign saying visitors forbidden. 
But don't worry, she's kidding. Oh, wait, hold on. And she ain't kidding. Daniel Schrader, just producer, knows a boat you can get on. The gist, we ain't no delinquents. We're misunderstood. Deep down inside of us, there is good. Oom peru, de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening.